This is Downtown, the podcast, episode one. Coming to you from Bangor, Maine. Hi, I'm Rich Kimball. That's Carrie Haskell. Hello, Carrie. Good morning, afternoon. All of those things, whenever you're listening. Whenever you're listening. Yeah. Uh, This is uh, Downtown, the podcast, which is based on the Downtown radio show that airs Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. out of Bangor, Maine, WZON, AM 620, WKIT HD3. Streaming audio is available every day at our website downtownwithrichkimball.com. You can also download the WZON app and take us anywhere in the world. It's an interview-based show, national caliber guest list, we like to think, and we'll showcase that in our first episode today. Conversations coming up with actor Brian Cranston. A little bonus. Most weeks we'll have a couple of interviews. Uh, We've got three for you this week. Brian's going to play a little game with us. We'll also talk with author Robert Curson in a couple of moments. But uh, we'll feature a real legend from the world of children's television, too. Yeah, big one. Uh, Marty Croft did what, 20 different shows over the course of the decades, kids shows with his brother, Sid, and their productions continue to today. And I, I think it's safe to say perhaps the most unique visual style in the history of children's television. So a conversation with Marty Croft coming up later in the Downtown Podcast as well. We're brought to you every week by our friends at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And by the great folks at Nice Brewing Company. Work hard, play hard, be nice. German-style beer from the woods of Maine. That's nice, G-N-I-S-S. Let's get started in the podcast with author Robert Curson. His previous books include Crashing Through, Pirate Hunters. The newest is entitled Rocket Men, The Daring Odyssey of Apollo 8 and the Men Who Made Man's First Journey to the Moon. Everybody remembers Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, Apollo 11. None of that would have been possible without a dramatic flight just seven months earlier by Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders, the crew of Apollo 8, and it's recounted in this wonderful book by author Robert Curson. The book is is so good. It's so uh, dramatic. It's such an incredible story. And uh, even, uh, as I told you on the phone there, even somebody who uh, who knows space pretty well and was a big space fan growing up, so much that I learned from the book as well. And, and, and I guess let's start with this. The fact that this flight in December of 1968 was every bit and perhaps even more high risk than the flight to the moon that featured the landing just seven months later. There was so much at stake for not only the astronauts, but for the space program itself. The space program itself and for the country itself, because remember, 1968, you can make a very powerful argument, was one of the worst years in our country's history. Uh, You have the assassinations of Martin Luther King and uh, Robert Kennedy. You have violence in the streets, including in my hometown of Chicago at the Democratic Convention. You have 15,000 dead Americans in Vietnam. It seems that the whole country is divided against itself. Nobody can come together, it seems, on anything. And yet, um, at the very end, in the final hours of this terrible year, um, humanity is going to try, try something it's never tried before, and that's uh, to leave its home planet and to arrive at a new world, the moon. Well, and all of this happening on the heels of the biggest tragedy the space program had experienced at that time, uh, the fire on the launch pad of Apollo 1 that killed three astronauts, and then also the failure of Apollo 6. That's right. Um, Apollo 1, you you lose three uh, heroic astronauts on on the launch pad uh, during a test, not even the launch. And that is almost enough to derail NASA right there. They have to go through congressional hearings, and um, everybody is traumatized by the event. 
And then you have, uh, as you point out, Apollo 6, which is just the second test of the Saturn V rocket, the only machine powerful enough to deliver men to the moon. And in its second test, it fails catastrophically. The next time they're going to fly the Saturn V is not an unmanned test to try to work out the problems on Apollo 6. It's going to be Apollo 8 uh, with three men aboard, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders. And they're not going into Earth orbit only. They're not going 853 miles above the Earth, which is the current altitude record at the time. They're going to go 240,000 miles away to the moon. Let's talk about the individuals, because I was fascinated to learn more about them. And start with Frank Borman, who was a, a bit of an enigma in the space program, in that he, he didn't join, he didn't want to become an astronaut for the traditional reasons. For him, it was about competition and especially beating the Russians. It really was. And Frank Borman was uh, considered perhaps the finest of NASA's astronauts, or one of the finest, at least at the time. But he was very um, focused on defeating the Soviet Union in the space race. And you have to remember at the time, um, space is seen as the ultimate battlefield. Um, the superpower that controls space can also control it for military reasons. They, you know, if you can control space, you can put soldiers in space, you can put military bases on the moon. There's really no end to the potential destruction one side can wreak on the other. And Borman sees this um, space race as the ultimate expression of the Cold War, and he's in it strictly to beat the Soviet Union. He is not um, enchanted by space or the idea of exploration or the thrill of rockets. He wants to defeat the Soviet Union. In many ways, the polar opposite was uh, Jim Lovell, who had dreamed of spaceflight from the time he was a young man and, and as tightly wound as Frank Borman could be at times. Uh, Lovell, as you point out in the book, was the guy that you want to be going to space with or off on a fishing trip. Yeah, he's, he is one of the sweetest, um, most uh, easygoing guys you'll ever run across. He grew up very poor in Milwaukee um, without a father. His father had been killed in a car accident when Jim was just a little boy, but he always dreamed of exploration. Even as a young boy, he loved the idea of exploring and pushing into the unknown. And as soon as he became aware of rockets in high school, he built his own rocket. And at the Naval Academy, when others were writing their um, graduation thesis about classic naval battles or naval strategy, Lovell was already writing about uh, rockets and what it would mean to send men into space. So to him, it was a very romantic proposition. Make no mistake, he also understood and believed in the importance of beating the Soviet Union in the space race. But for him, it was a lot about exploration and about pushing into the unknown. We're talking with Robert Curson, author of Rocket Men, The Daring Odyssey of Apollo 8, and the astronauts who made man's first journey to the moon. The third member of the crew, uh, for me, was the most interesting guy because I, I knew the least about him going into the book. That's Bill Anders, who initially was very disappointed to be part of this Apollo 8 crew because he thought it would cost him and knew it would cost him a chance to eventually walk on the moon. Right. Anders is five years younger than Lovell and Borman. And uh, this uh, Apollo 8 is, meant to, is going to be his first space flight. He's training as a lunar module pilot, which means that, according to his calculations, he's got about an 80% or better chance of walking on the moon someday. But part of what makes the Apollo 8 flight so thrilling is that its original mission was changed suddenly in the summer of 1968 from a low-Earth orbital mission to the fir mankind's first journey to the moon. Now, that meant Apollo 8 was going to go without a lunar module. They were not going to land on the moon. And that's part of what makes this trip so daring and so dangerous and so thrilling. But it also meant that Anders had to change responsibilities. He was not going to be flying a lunar module anymore. 
And that meant he knew that his chances of walking on the moon had dropped to between slim and none. So at first, he's very discouraged by it. But then it occurs to him that going on Apollo 8 means he's going to be one of the first three human beings ever to leave Earth and one of the first three human beings ever to arrive at a new world at the new moon, at the moon, at the moon. And so this becomes thrilling to him. He loves the idea of exploration. He's a scientist. He's a nuclear engineer in addition to a top-rate fighter pilot. So for him, the idea of being the first and and getting to explore this new world is um, a thrill beyond compare. And he even tells his wife that he calculates there's about a one-third chance that he won't make it back from the moon. But he, he earns some toughness along the way from his dad. Can you share a little of that incredible story about his father? Yeah, his father was a real war hero. He'd been on a ship called the Panay, and this was during um, peacetime, but uh, the Panay had been um, attacked by Japanese fighter planes. And it's, it's a neutral, it's an American ship, and it's a neutral um, party. Um, they're attacked, and it, Anders' father acts so heroically. Um, he's writing out orders in blood because he can't speak and certainly would have received the Medal of Honor for his heroic actions. I think this is in 1937, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he, he behaved in, a, in an unbelievably courageous way and saved so many lives. Uh, and this was made a very um, profound impression on his son, young Bill, who was nearby at the time. Bill was born in Hong Kong. And so uh, this is something that stays with young Bill Anders, and lives with him even into the time when he goes into space. And even though he was a younger guy and and Lovell and Borman knew each other, they'd spent nearly two weeks together on the Gemini 7 flight, but they grew to respect Bill Anders' work and ability very quickly. Oh, they very much did. And you're right. Um, Lovell and Borman flew aboard Gemini 7 for 14 days in a capsule the size, no, no bigger than the front seat of a Volkswagen Beetle. This was an unbelievable flight. It was done to see just how long astronauts could endure a flight. And when they got off um, onto the recovery ship, Lovell said, we'd like to announce our engagement. (laughs) So Lovell and Borman, even though they were quite different um, in terms of personality, really loved each other, and they were perfectly suited to fly together. When they met Anders, even though Anders was younger and would be making his first space flight about Apollo 8, they connected with him immediately, respected him, and soon enough, Borman believed that he had in his crewmates for Apollo 8 the finest astronaut crew NASA had ever assembled. Well, he certainly had that, and then he had the technical expertise behind him as well, because this book is also a story about the people behind the scenes, the engineers, the aeronautical experts, uh, the people uh, like Chris Kraft, um, Deke Slayton, and so many many others who pulled this all together, as you mentioned, in just four months' time, and, and that figure that stands out, the fact that man had never traveled more than 853 miles from the Earth, and now we're going to go a quarter of a million miles. It's remarkable to think about that exponential leap forward. It's unbelievable. Normal space flights would take 12 to 18 months for training and preparation. This one rushed to the launch pad in four months for thrilling reasons, which I go into in the book. And I try not to make the book too technical by any means. It's really a human story. But they are taking such risks, not just in how short a time they have, four months to prepare for this whole thing, but they're, take, they're going in all kinds of uh, unknowns. Everything on this flight is going to be for the first time. And they're going, remember, just to orbit. They're not going to land. So they're going without a lunar module. And that meant that they're going without a backup engine because the lunar module also serves as a backup engine. It would be the thing that saved Apollo 13 and Lovell on his next flight. 
But here, Apollo 8, for all the risks and everything, going without a backup engine, they're going on the Saturn V for the first time men are ever going to go aboard, and only the third flight ever, after the second flight failed so badly in its second test. Everything is unknown. And when you go and listen to other astronauts, including Neil Armstrong, talk about Apollo 8, they speak about it in reverential terms. They sound different when they talk about Apollo 8 than even when they talk about their own flight. And that's a big part of the reason is because when Apollo 11 went and they landed on the moon, they already knew so much of it could be done because Apollo 8 proved it. But when Apollo 8 went, nobody knew that any of that could be done with men aboard. And there were so many technical challenges along the way that they were undertaking for the first time, escaping Earth's orbit, getting themselves uh, into the moon's orbit, and all of those so precise that one minor mistake either way, and you find yourself uh, trapped in space or forever circling the moon. That's absolutely true. And remember, on top of that, not only were they taking these risks of smashing into the moon or being trapped in lunar orbit or flying off into solar orbit forever, they are going on Christmas Eve and Christmas, they're going to be orbiting the moon. So as NASA's chief pointed out when he screamed in fury at the idea of this mission, if anything goes wrong and these guys die out there, no one will ever look at the moon or at Christmas the same again. Yeah, and you include a letter in the book that's wonderful from a citizen who wrote into NASA urging them to postpone for a month or so because of the possibility of Christmas always bearing the memory of the loss of these astronauts. Yes, he, he begged them not to do it, not just because Christmas was at risk, but because so much else had gone wrong in this terrible year of 1968. It was one horror after another after another, and here they're going to go on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day at the end of one of the worst years in our country's history. And if something goes wrong, then the man points out, what does that mean for the rest of us? One of the most thrilling parts of the book, and as I told you, I knew how it ended, but I was still on the edge of my seat, was this important maneuver called the TEI. And I believe that's what enabled them to escape the moon's gravitation or the moon's orbit and begin their trip back to Earth. And even though I knew how it ended, uh, I was hanging on every word. Yes, that's one of the most dangerous maneuvers. Many people in mission control believe that the single most risky maneuver because to get out of lunar orbit and head back home, the engine, ha their single engine that they have has to relight and it has to perform near perfectly. And if the thing doesn't relight again or it has problems, they're trapped forever in lunar orbit or close to forever. Ultimately, they'll probably cr crash into the lunar surface. But that single engine has to relight and they have to gain enough speed to escape lunar gravity and head back home. And nobody knew if that would happen because, again, nobody had ever tried any of this before. Well, there was the science, there was the exploration, there was paving the way for the Apollo 11 landing seven months later, but then there was the wonder that uh, perhaps nobody could have planned for that they saw when they emerged from the dark side of the moon and saw the Earth for the first time and captured in that incredible photograph by Bill Anders. Right. Anders was charged with the photographic responsibility for the trip, and they trained in these four months so hard on studying the moon, to photograph the moon, to scout for possible landing sites for what would be Apollo 11, and to study the moon. And, you know, they are the first humans to lay eyes on the far side of the moon. But on the fourth revolution, um, Borman changed the orientation of the spacecraft, and the men could see this lunar, gray, featureless lunar horizon set against a black infinity of space. But all of a sudden, a blue jewel begins to rise over the lunar horizon. And they realize suddenly that that's Earth. It's Earthrise. 
And it's the single most beautiful thing any of them has ever seen. And they scramble for their cameras. Um, Andrews gets a beautiful telephoto lens with a color film magazine. And he snaps off pictures of the first Earthrise ever witnessed by human beings. And it changes them fundamentally. And when they spoke to me about what it was like to see Earthrise, it was so beautiful and so profound the way they described it. Each of them was changed from it. And, of course, we all know that photograph. It's you can make a good argument it's the single most famous photograph and maybe most important photograph ever taken. And along with that photograph, what is most memorable and continues 50 years later about that flight is what happened in their broadcast, their Christmas time broadcast. And I was fascinated to read that Frank Borman wanted no part of doing any of these broadcasts. But for this one in particular, they reached out to the astronauts from Houston and said, do whatever you want. Everything had been planned down to the last detail, but the broadcast that made this flight so famous and such an important landmark in human history, they came up with on their own. They did, and that, Borman laughs about it today, 50 years later. He still can't believe it. He said, can you imagine now if you're going to be speaking to more people than had ever listened to a human voice at once? And that's what they were told. Nearly a third of the world's population would be tuning in. It would go through a hundred committees and all kinds of oversight, but they just left it to the astronauts. And um, ultimately, the astronauts, with the help of some friends, came up with what they thought was the perfect and appropriate thing, but they didn't tell anyone. They just wrote it on the fireproof paper, put it in their flight plane. Their wives didn't know. NASA didn't know. Nothing. But on the ninth revolution, while they were speaking to nearly a third of the world's population, um, they read from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, they said... And it moved people across the world. Nobody could believe what they were hearing. This was an origin story. And it spoke to so many of the world's religions and so many people in the world. It seemed the very most perfect thing to say for mankind's first trip away from home and first arrival at a new world. And after they were done speaking, it only took about a minute, a minute and a half for them to finish reading um, what they'd chosen. People all over the world streamed out of their homes and out of apartments, out of stores, out of saloons all around the world, and they looked toward the sky, many of them sobbing from the emotion of the moment, knowing they could not see Apollo 8 from the ground, of course, but looking all the same. It was a profound, incredible moment. And you could go on uh, YouTube right now and watch a video of it and hear them speak, and it's as powerful today as it was 50 years ago. I was tearing up reading it in the book when I got to that, and I was so moved by the story you share in the book of uh, legendary conductor Leonard Bernstein. Yes, he was very uh, suspect of the space program. He thought it cost way too much money, that it was not doing nearly the good that could be done otherwise with the money. Uh, he was um, very much against even watching this thing, but he was at a party where the uh, broadcast was being watched, and reluctantly he, he um, forced himself kind of out of the corner of his eye to watch and was um, reduced to tears, as millions of people were. There was no escaping that something... Um, unbelievable had happened, something almost impossible, and something that would never, ever happen again. No matter how many more space flights were taken, nobody would ever arrive for the first time again. And it, uh, it overwhelmed him. We're talking with Robert Curson, his wonderful book, Rocket Men, and uh, Tom Wolf coined the phrase, the right stuff. And we often talk about it here as birthdays roll around. It's incredible uh, how many of these Apollo astronauts are alive, and this entire crew in uh, their 80s and early 90s still alive. And to me, that's a, a mark of, of the stuff that they were made of. It really is. And, you know, one of the things I've discovered when I 
uh, first began work on this book and I first started to meet with the astronauts at their homes was that was that the importance of their wives in the story and the families. But these uh, three women they married. By the way, the Apollo 8 crew is the only crew in Apollo or Gemini uh, in which all the marriages survived. Marriage was a very challenging proposition mm. for astronauts. It was a very difficult life. But these three marriages survived, and they talked to me. It seemed almost impossible for them to talk about their success as astronauts or what they accomplished without crediting their wives first and foremost. And that became a part of the story I hadn't expected at first, but it was a wonderful part. And you really get to see just what these guys were made of, not just as astronauts, but they, they had the right stuff as gentlemen also. I, I have not, it's, it's hard for me to imagine in my life meeting three nicer, more ordinary guys, if you can believe it, but they really did have the right stuff all the way around. That's author Robert Curson here on Downtown, the podcast, discussing his book, Rocket Men, The Daring Odyssey of Apollo 8 and the men who made man's first journey to the moon. Still ahead on the podcast, Brian Cranston shows his knowledge of Brian Cranston. A little Cranston trivia coming up, and children's television producing legend Marty Croft. First, a brief word from our sponsors. Please listen. Important information here from our friends first at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Just five years ago, two friends teamed up to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing methods. And Nice Brewing Company was born. That's Nice, G-N-E-I-S-S. They're based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains. And there, Dustin and Tim combine their love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the Nice Weiss, Sun and Shine, IPAs, Stouts, Porters, or any of their seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Be sure to ask for beers from Nice at your favorite restaurant or bar. Visit the Tasting Room in Limerick. They're open Fridays 2 to 7 and Saturdays 12 to 6. And check out the website, too, at nicebeer.com to learn more. Work hard, play hard, be nice. German-style beer from the woods of Maine. That, of course, the theme from one of the best TV shows in the history of the medium, for goodness sakes, Breaking Bad, from Vince Gilligan, acclaimed show with tremendous performances by everybody, but especially Brian Cranston as Walter White. Brian's had quite a career from his days as Dr. Tim Watney on Seinfeld to Hal the Dad and Malcolm in the Middle to playing Lyndon Johnson on Broadway and on television in All the Way. Brian, also the author of a wonderful memoir, A Life in Parts, and has been on our radio show a couple of times. Last time around, we got to thinking, well, two times on the show, Brian's like an old friend. And so, against his better judgment, Brian agreed to play a little Brian Cranston trivia with us. Here's what it sounded like. Uh, well, Brian, it's your second time on the show, so you, know, you, you feel like an old friend to us now. I wonder if you'd be willing to play a little game with us. Okay. <laughs> You, you've created so many iconic roles through the years with Walter White, with Hal from Ma Malcolm in the Middle, Dr. Tim Watley and Seinfeld, but 
people may not know, you had a long, long career uh, before those shows that made you a huge success. And I wonder if we could throw out some characters and see if you could recall what show they were on. Wow. You, you, you might just dump things. Oh, I, I, I would be surprised if I remembered. All right, let's start right, with this one, because actually you talked about this show the last time you were on with us. Your character was Douglas Donovan. Now, that show I know, because <laughs> I played that character for two years on a, a daytime drama, a soap opera called Loving, back in the early 80s. With our, uh, with our friend John O'Hurley. With our friend John O'Hurley, yeah. He was, he was my nemesis on the show. In fact, we married the same woman. <laughs> one of your typical at the same time we were married to the same woman at the same time and of course did, I didn't know it um, because good guys don't know it right. bad guys know it so yeah alright you're one for one how about this one Uncle oh. Russell okay. Uncle Russell was a character I played on a show for CBS called Raising Miranda a beautiful show that I think was before its time it was really sweet and, and funny, but it wasn't like a laugh riot. And I, I, I don't think the, the network really knew what to do with it at that time. But I enjoyed it. You're on a roll here, two for two. How about Lieutenant Gordon Denton? Lieutenant Gordon Denton. Uh, I guess he's a cop, or he could be a he could be in military, right? Uh, yeah, I would go with Gordon your first Denton. instinct. I would go with cop. A cop, Lieutenant Gordon Denton. I don't remember. What was that one? That was Brooklyn South. Oh, boy, that was a story. I put that in the book, too. That was one of my worst experiences as an actor. No wonder I blocked that. Well, yeah, absolutely. Now, you've played a lot of doctors through the years. This was this was just a, a one-time appearance as Dr. Harding Fletcher. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Harding Fletcher, probably on something like Murder, She Wrote. Ooh, you're so close. close. You're right in the neighborhood uh, with another uh, TV icon. Uh, I'll say maybe Matlock. Yes, sir. Absolutely. There you okay. go. All right. And the last one, I, very you early. Know, Rich, <laughs> you gotta have the you got to have a bell. I know. We should have, have a bell. Ding, ding. It's winning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or thunderous applause. Here's the last one. Uh, do you remember Robert. playing Robert Hollis? Robert Hollis. <laughs> Working uh, oh. with an Academy yes, yes, Award yes. winner. Was Robert Hollis my character on a show called Airwolf? Yes. <laughs> hey. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, that's... Four out of five with about 150 IMD listings. Well done, sir. Wow. Well, that was that was a very important show for me to do because I met my future wife on that show. Well, there you go. That was like 31 years ago or so. 31, 32 years. Wow. Well, that's incredible. Time flies. That's Brian Cranston here on Downtown the Podcast, Episode 1. HR Who's your friend when things get broke? I'm Rich Kimber. Harry Haskell is here, and our final guest on the first podcast, a legend in the world of television production for kids, along with his brother Sid, Marty Croft has been producing shows for nearly 50 years. And we're talking classics like H.R. Puffin Stuff, Land of the Lost, Sigmund and the Sea Monster, The Bugaloos, Lidsville, Electra Woman, and Dinah Girl. They even 
did a TV show for kids with Richard Pryor hosting Pryor's Place and uh, still on the air with some reboots of old series and uh, the, the new one that debuted a couple of years back, Mutton Stuff. Uh, recently, Sid and Marty Croft were honored by the Television Academy at the Daytime Emmys with a Lifetime Achievement Award. We had a chance to talk with Marty Croft about his half century of children's television production. You've had such a, a remarkable career. Um, first of all, let's start with the unique visual style of uh, Sid and Marty Croft Productions. Is that something uh, that came from uh, the, the puppeteering history of your family? Yeah, we were always into co- colors or everything to us. So, you know, I, for example, most of our shows, we went in and sold the network on a show not with a script, but with a, a book, an incredible book of art showing them what the show was visually. So that's, that was like our pilot at times. We did 20 pilots in our whole career, and we got 19 on the air, and 17 worked. So the batting average is not bad. I would say that's tremendous there. Now, you put obviously a lot of production value into the costumes and into the sets, but the special effects were always uh, quite simple, and that was, that was clearly an intentional decision that you guys made. Well, I think, you know, sometimes when you don't have enough money, it's a positive. You can spend a ton of money, whether it be on a show or a hotel, and the people in the audience, and uh, they, can, uh, they can hate it. So, yeah, the look, the look of Croft is, is, is important. And, of course, grabbing the kids, you know, with a new form like we had, because it was all animation before, you know, we had to grab them in the first 30 seconds. So our songs were always real good. We always, you know, we always employed songwriters that were great. You know, for example, Charlie Fox, who wrote a song called Killing Me Softly, which I'm sure nobody heard of. <laughs> but it was right. And, uh, and he did themes, you know, for Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and on and on. So we would bring in some, some heavy-duty talent always. And we always were able, we were lucky enough always to attract them. Of course, now it's a little bit easier because they all grew up on our shows. So if I call Brad Pitt, if I can get him on the phone, he might do a guest shot. So that's, you know, I just had Randy Jackson on Mutton Stuff, uh, which was, we did two specials in the last couple of weeks for Nickelodeon. And that's the show with 23 Dogs. So, you know, I had Randy Jackson on one, I had David Arquette on the other. So we do a track. We had the girl, the gymnast, the little girl, can't think of her name, that won five gold medals at the last Olympics. So, you know, we're smart enough to, even if the kids don't know everything we, you know, we put on the show, everyone we put on, I think that, the, you know, we attract the parents and they're important to drive little kids. So we've been fairly smart about it. Well, you sure have, but still making terrific television. You've brought back uh, some of the old series and, and rebooted those. What do you think has been the secret to the staying power of the Sid and Marty Croft shows? Why have they endured and the uh, new generations have come to love them as much as uh, the rest of us did 40-plus years ago? Well, let me tell you, it's for a very strange reason. Because I never give up. Uh, I remember when I was doing the Richard Pryor kids series, uh, that was hard to get them. The New York, there was a press conference, and the New York Times was there, and this woman said, why are you doing these shows? Because of all the drugs you did, and you're, like, paying back? He said, no. Do you know Marty Croft? She said, no. 
He said, well, if you knew him, if he was in your room, you get him the hell out of the room, say yes, because you'll never get rid of him. <laughs> so that, that's basically, I don't give up. So, you know, and you're going for, we've never gone in with two shows. That's a wrong thing to do. You go in with one idea and you drive it home or you don't. I mean, we're not batting a thousand in that area because that's a tough one. The networks, all these executives, you know, they hear pitches every day. So you got to go in and have a sense of humor and do whatever I know how to do. Of course, we have a track record after we did Puff and stuff. And as we went on, we had more of a track record. So they did listen a lot better. They listened with two ears instead of one. I have to ask you about a story that uh, some people say is urban legend, but I, I've always believed it to be true. Uh, the basketball great Bill Lambeer played a slee stack. That's right. I got him out of college. In fact, <laughs> he still calls. Every time he has a dinner, he says, can I get a, a clip of Land of the Lost House and I want to show it to everybody. So he credits us for making, making him a bad guy on, with basketball. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned the, the Richard Pryor show, Pryor's Place, which was uh, such a bold move to make. You also uh, produced some wonderful specials in the 80s uh, with Donnie and Marie Osmond, uh, Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell sisters. Uh, was that a, a nice change of pace for you and your brother to go in that direction? Well, you know, that was, you know, we, we, we were from entertainment, doing nightclubs and doing adult shows with the puppets. You know, we were the opening act for uh, Liberace, Judy Garland. Frank Sinatra, so you know that that's that's where it, it began with all of our puppet shows, and in fact, you know we, were, we played all over the country with these stars, and you know most producers don't you know they fly from L.A. to New York, but we get the feel of all the all the people in these all these cities, and we were the creative heads and had our puppet shows in all the theaters at the Six Flag parks, so that was you know we played to a couple million people there. So this is not overnight, and I forgot your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, congratulations on this wonderful honor from the Television Academy. You and Sid approaching your, your golden anniversary of producing for TV, but, you, of course, you've been together for a lot longer than that. We uh, congratulate you on the award and hope that you continue to make wonderful well, TV. You know, the lifetime achievement of what sounds like you're already on the farm. <laughs> but we're, you know, our company's going to thrive. I've got three daughters, the next generation. I got a little two-year-old kid that's the third generation. So we're in good shape. We probably have more relatives than Disney had. <laughs> well, we're glad to hear that. Marty, thank you so much for making time to visit with us today. Okay, thanks. That's television producer Marty Croft here on Downtown, the podcast. Episode one, just about done. That was pretty good. No one got hurt, Kerry. That was all right. No injuries. That's a victory. A sore shoulder, but I, I suspect it's unrelated. Uh, we thank you for listening to the first Downtown Podcast. Spread the word. Subscribe, if you haven't already. Tell your friends about it. Pass it along. Share. We may put a bounty out for you to get some more people to listen to the show. It'll be uh, released. We'll drop, as they say, every single Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, wherever fine podcasts are found for absolutely free. We remind you, Downtown the Podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength and nice brewing company. Work hard, play hard, be nice. Join us next time around. Mark Duplass, talented actor, director, writer, producer, 
and now author. He's got a brand new book out with his brother, Jay, entitled Like Brothers. We'll talk about that with Mark Duplass on episode two of Downtown the Podcast. Downtown the Podcast.